Hello, thanks for tuning in today to learn about osteoporosis treatments with Dr. Joy Wu. This episode is the second of a two-part conversation. In part one, we discuss osteoporosis prevention, an investment that I believe we should all be making. Dr. Wu is a board-certified endocrinologist who specializes in osteoporosis and other bone mineral diseases. She works at Stanford University as Chief of the Division of Endocrinology, Gerontology, and Metabolism, and as Vice Chair of Basic Science in Stanford's Department of Medicine. Osteoporosis is a shockingly common disease that impacts both men and women. It's often described as a silent killer because we may not realize that we're at risk until it's too late. Weak bones can lead to bone fractures that are not just painful, but can take a toll in many ways, from reduced mobility to loss of independence to hospitalizations and broader health consequences. Thankfully, there's a lot that can be done to mitigate the impact of osteoporosis. As Dr. Wu explains, there are both lifestyle and medication options that can halt bone loss, or in some cases, actually rebuild bone. I know firsthand from my family how devastating osteoporosis can be. I sincerely hope that this conversation empowers you to work with your doctor and find the best path forward for you. Let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Hello, and welcome back, Dr. Wu. Thank you for continuing our conversation about bone health. Thanks for having me back. So we talked earlier about prevention, and now we're going to be talking about treatment of osteoporosis. But in case someone missed the first conversation, let's just lay the foundation by explaining the definition of osteoporosis and how it's diagnosed. Sure. So osteoporosis is a disease of bone fragility that's associated with an increased risk of fracture. It can be diagnosed by what we call a DEXA or bone density scan. When the bone density at the spine or the hip is lower than 2.5 standard deviations below that of an average young adult. Ideally, this is identified on a screening bone density before any fractures have occurred so that we can focus on prevention. And screening is important because we can't actually feel or sense when we have low bone density. It only becomes apparent when someone experiences a fracture, which brings us to the other way to diagnose osteoporosis, which is that when someone suffers a fragility fracture, which can occur in places like the spine, the wrist, or the hip, often this is enough to diagnose osteoporosis regardless of the bone mineral density if the fracture occurred without a, a major trauma. Mm-hmm. So if somebody gets a diagnosis of osteoporosis, they find out that their bone density is really low. How bleak or how not bleak is, is the future for them? And how do you think about the prognosis of different patients? And, and how do you speak to them about what this really means to have that diagnosis? Well, so having had a fracture, a fragility fracture, does raise your risk substantially of having future fractures um, because it tells us something about the quality of the bone and the strength. It can be a helpful signal to know that maybe there are things that can be done to lower that risk. So a very common scenario is that younger women, you know, women in their 50s and 60s, when they fall are more likely to break their wrist, I think because they are able to sort of extend their hands and break the fall. So a very typical story is a woman in her 50s or 60s might come in with a wrist fracture. And often women will say, well, I, of course I broke my wrist because I fell. But actually, that's not supposed to happen. So hopefully an astute physician will realize that that's enough reason to go screening for osteoporosis and and 
perhaps initiate treatment. So if somebody gets diagnosed, is this something where you would automatically jump into treatment plans or, or how do, like, where do you go from there? And what are some of the factors that help shape where do you go from there once you have a diagnosis? Sure. So in my clinic, you know, I predominantly see people who have been diagnosed with osteoporosis and they're asking exactly that question, which is, you know, what is the treatment plan? So my first question is usually what's going on? Why do they have osteoporosis? Is it routine postmenopausal osteoporosis? Is there anything else going on? especially other conditions or medications that could be causing the bone loss. And that's important because sometimes you can treat the underlying condition and improve bone health. Once I sort of have a good understanding of why they might have osteoporosis, then I try to determine the overall fracture risk. And that means things like looking at how many risk factors they have, how old are they, you know, what's their weight and height. If I have the BMD bone mineral density available and whether they've had previous fractures. And then this helps me to decide, can we focus for now on lifestyle measures to limit progression? Or do we really need to think about treatment with medications? So you used a phrase there, limit progression with lifestyle interventions. So is that, is that the best that lifestyle interventions can offer is to slow down further decline? Or is it possible to actually increase your bone mineral density through lifestyle interventions? Yeah. So um, by lifestyle interventions, I'm talking about things like making sure that you have enough calcium and vitamin D. In the last episode, we talked about exercise and especially the importance of strength and weight training, which can be beneficial for bone. So depending on the circumstances, they can definitely slow the rate of bone loss. Sometimes they can lead to modest improvements, but usually if it's severe osteoporosis, I'm sometimes asked by patients, can I fix this with lifestyle alone? And if it's severe, the answer is usually no. Other lifestyle things include maintaining a healthy weight. If you're a smoker, to try and stop and then to limit excessive use of alcohol. Can you speak to the weight part for a second? Because I'm a little bit confused about that because I know that low body weight is considered a risk factor for osteoporosis. So would weight loss be helpful in some way or through a different mechanism? What's the relationship? So, so the goal is sort of a healthy weight, right? Not too overweight, but also not too underweight. And it is true that weight loss has many benefits, but actually the effect on bone sometimes can be a loss of bone mass with, you know, very rapid or significant weight loss. But, you know, the goal is to aim for a sort of healthy range of weight. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, you must encounter patients who want to exercise but are nervous about their current state of fragility. So how do you go about advising on that? Or is that something you do? Or or who advises people on on an appropriate exercise plan given their fragility? That's a great question. So, you know, here in uh, Northern California, we have a lot of people who enjoy skiing. So a common question I get is, is it still safe for me to go skiing? So I think, you know, there are many kinds of exercises that can be done that are not too risky. Things like walking are great and there are lots of body weight type programs that can be used to increase strength. For people who are interested in things like biking or horseback riding or skiing that may have a greater risk of fracture, it depends on their circumstances. I think anyone who participates in those kinds of sports already is accepting a degree of risk, right? So no matter your bone density. So when I go skiing, I accept that it's possible that I could fall and have some injuries. And so I generally tell people it if you have a new diagnosis of osteoporosis, you might not want to take up a highly risky activity and, until you've had some 
chance to have an intervention, hopefully increase your bone strength. On the other hand, if you are someone who skis all the time and is, you know, experienced and knows how to mitigate your risks, then, you know, those are the factors that go into your decision making. It's always a trade-off, right? If it's, if it's your number one joy in life, then maybe it is worth some level of risk for it. Right. And there, again, there are so many benefits to being active and engaging in sports and activities that you love and being outside. So it's sort of a big picture decision. So let's shift gears a bit to the medical intervention side. So if somebody is doing everything they can lifestyle wise and they still need more help. So what are some of the paths that you would uh, consider and how do you navigate that? Sure. So we talked about how the amount of bone that we have is largely determined by the balance between new bone formation by these cells called osteoblasts and bone breakdown by cells called osteoclasts. So that means there are really two approaches to treating osteoporosis. We can either block bone breakdown or resorption, or we can promote the bone formation. So by far the most prescriptions are written for the category of medications that block bone resorption, and we call those anti-resorptives. So these include bisphosphonates, which can be given either in pill form by mouth or as an intravenous infusion. And then there's also a medication called denosumab that's an injection given every six months. And all of these medications are extremely effective at lowering fracture risk and are usually my first line options. For people who have maybe more severe osteoporosis or history of multiple fractures, we can also promote bone formation. These are medications called anabolic agents. And two of them called teriparatide and abaloparatide are daily self-injections, while the third, romosozumab, is a monthly injection that's given in the clinic. So these are very effective, but as you might imagine, less popular because of the need for such frequent injections, and so typically reserved for more severe cases. Intuitively, it seems like maybe stimulating more bone growth is inherently a little more risky than stopping bone resorption. Just when I just think about adding growth signals to your body, it seems a little more, a little more scary. But is it true in general that adding bone is maybe is in some ways riskier than preventing stopping the resorption? Or is it just totally depend on the drug? So um, you're still sort of working through your own body's mechanisms, right? So whether you're promoting bone formation or stopping breakdown, but allowing your body to build up more bone. Ultimately, it's about having more amount of bone and increased bone strength. The, the anabolic agents do come with some additional considerations, which is that we can effectively increase the amount of bone that we make. But then if we stop the medication, suddenly that new bone can disappear pretty quickly. And so we often have to switch to an anti-resorptive after an anabolic. But I think both approaches have been demonstrated to be very effective in lowering fracture risk. So I'm curious that the considerations that go into how much of it is about kind of convenience and tolerability for the patients of, of taking a pill versus what's going to have the best outcome. Right. So I, I think those are all important considerations. So if it's very severe, then I may be um, placing more emphasis on anabolic agents. Um, but I think it's very important for patients to be comfortable with the approach. And so any of these options will be better than not doing any treatment at all. So, you know, I, I think it, it has to be a partnership with the patients and, and a discussion about what the options are and, and what, what the individual circumstances are that might guide our decision. And how does your work intersect with surgical interventions? How do you decide whether or not that's an avenue? 
Right. So that decision lies with the surgeons. So often when somebody has an acute fracture, the first medical provider they might see would be a surgeon and they decide on whether the acute management requires going to the operating room. And then, you know, really my role is to then sort of evaluate the overall risk for future fractures and and whether we need to do something to try to lower that risk. Mm -hmm. So we touched on this a bit earlier in the prevention conversation. I just wanted to elaborate a bit here on the extent to which bone mineral density is or is not a strong predictor of fractures. So if you get your bone mineral density up, is that is that all you need? Or is I'm just wondering how strong of a predictor is that? And why is it not a perfect predictor, as you suggested earlier? Sure. So bone mineral density is a pretty good predictor of fracture risk, especially when it's low. So then the, you know, what we call the positive predictive value is quite high. The challenge is that half of all fractures actually happen in individuals whose bone density does not actually meet the criteria for osteoporosis. It might be in a more intermediate category called osteopenia. So the challenge is to identify those individuals who maybe don't have full-on osteoporosis by bone density, but are still at risk. So there's a lot of work being done to identify other ways to predict fracture risk. There are risk calculators that can calculate the number of risk factors you have and integrate that with things like your body weight and other factors. There's a lot of work being done on other kinds of imaging studies, even something called nanoindentation, where they basically poke a tiny needle at your bone and try to measure the strength. And that's because, again, bone mineral density is pretty good as a predictor, but there are other factors and we tend to hand wave and say that, you know, there's other things that go into bone quality overall. So we're always looking for better ways to predict that quality and strength. So speaking of looking forward, are there any particular avenues that you're excited about for promising treatments or other research areas for better understanding what's going on here? Sure. So, you know, lots of labs are looking for maybe new pathways that we could target with new medications that could be effective. We've been looking at, you know, some of these anabolic medications I mentioned are maybe not so popular because they require daily self-injection. So we've been trying to understand how they work, hoping that maybe we can find another way to accomplish the same goal. In the lab, we've been trying to convert different kinds of stem cells into bone forming osteoblasts, which could have a lot of applications for bone repair or regeneration. One of the things that we're excited about is we can now take skin cells from mice and convert them into bone-forming osteoblasts. And we're trying to figure out if we can find a way to do this with human cells. Wow, that would really open so many doors. That would be amazing. So are there any common misconceptions about osteoporosis treatments that you wanted to raise or address here? Well, so one of the supplements that people often ask me about is strontium. It's gotten a lot of publicity as an option for improving bone health. And the thing to be aware of is that strontium is an element and it's chemically very similar to calcium. So it uh, replaces the calcium in your bones and then it can make the, it's heavier than calcium, so it can make the bone density appear better, but it's what we call an artifact. So it raises your bone density, but it doesn't actually improve your chances of not fracturing, which is really what we ultimately care about. And so strontium was approved for a number of years in Europe but not the U.S., but, you know, Europe has since rescinded its approval because of this realization that it's, it's really not improving fracture risk. It only increases the bone density, but 
sort of falsely. Wow, that's fascinating. So some people are still taking that? Yes, I, I occasionally get patients who come in and ask about it. Wow. Anything else on the, on the treatment, perhaps on the supplement, any other supplements that people ask about commonly or that you would encourage or discourage? I think on the supplement front, you know, the bulk of the evidence still focuses on the importance of calcium and vitamin D. With respect to medications, there, there are some people who've heard in the press about some very rare side effects, including problems with the jaw or unusual or what we call atypical fractures. And those I want to emphasize are exceedingly rare. And we now have a better understanding of how to prescribe these medications so that we can maximize the benefits while we minimize these already very rare side effects. So I would encourage people not to be overly wary of medication if that's what it takes to lower the fracture risk. Because again, osteoporosis is quite common and the outcomes can be very impactful when somebody has a fracture. Yeah. Fear is often irrational, right? And you put a lot of weight in something that's really severe but rare versus something that's quite likely and also impactful. Right. And I've had patients who, out of fear of having what we call these atypical fractures, have sort of deferred on treatment and as as a consequence have suffered what we call typical fractures. And so that is always unfortunate. But I do think it's important to respect patients' sort of beliefs and it's important to earn their trust. And so, you know, it's always a conversation about what the options are and what they feel most comfortable with doing. Do you have any any closing advice for people who are newly diagnosed with osteoporosis and those who are caring for them? I think mostly if you have a new diagnosis, it's important to make sure that you talk to your doctor about your fracture risk. So, you know, would you benefit from lifestyle interventions or do you need a medication? And some of the resources that we mentioned before, especially the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation has a really nice website for patients with information about exercise, diet, and medications. Yeah, it just occurred to me, would most people be getting this diagnosis from their family doctor? How does that normally work? Right. So the most common scenario is that the family or primary care physician orders the screening bone density, say at the age of 65 for women, and then leads to the diagnosis. And, and so our colleagues in primary care are, are really great at managing osteoporosis. They're familiar with the medications and they probably write the bulk of prescriptions. But first, you know, maybe special cases or cases where something else is going on or, or there's underlying conditions or medications that are contributing to that, then you can refer to specialists like myself in endocrinology or maybe rheumatology that can provide some additional guidance. Would you mind um, just to wrap up sharing some of the resources for people to learn more in case they didn't catch them on the other episode? Sure. So for patients, I think one of the best sites is the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation. They have advice and guidance on not only lifestyle interventions, but also medications. The Endocrine Society, which is one of the world's largest organization of endocrinologists, has a patient-facing hormone health network where they have a lot of information that can be helpful for patients. And then the American Society for Bone and Mineral Research has a lot of information about the prevention and treatment of osteoporosis that's very helpful for physicians. Sounds like there really is a lot out there. You just have to make sure you're looking in the right places. 
and podcasts like yours. Great service to provide information for people. Well, thank you. That's what I hope to provide is something that, you know, it's, it can be really hard to separate, you know, the good stuff from the nonsense. And so I work hard to get people who really know what they're talking about exactly like you and to get your input on what the best resources are. So, well, thank you very much for your time. It's been really educational and encouraging to know that there is a lot out there that can be done. Thank you for having me. This was really a lot of fun. All right. Take care. 